This is your host, Derek Drakeford. <laughs> Good morning, America. This Good is morning. Your host, Derek Drakeford. I'm on the line right now with the number one MC. His name is Dr. Robert Drakeford. He's been the mayor of Carborough. He got his doctorate in education from UNCG. Listen, America, we really appreciated the feedback from last week. You said you want to hear more stories. You said he wanted us to take us there. Uh, so without further ado, we're going to talk to our main interviewer for this show, Dr. Robert Drakeford. How are you doing today? Wonderful. Awesome. I'm out of 75, I'm doing wonderful. Well, listen, you're blessed to be alive. We're all blessed to be alive. Uh, people are enjoying listening to your stories. Let's talk about college. You're a young African-American male growing up in Bricktown. How did college get into your mind? Well, early on, uh, I think I may have said something about Christmas. One winter, one of my teachers told my mother to get me encyclopedias. So I got a, they got me a a book of knowledge, which is 17 volumes, uh, for Christmas. And by the February, I'd read all, all 17 volumes of it. I was tested that year, and I was, I was in the seventh grade, and my test, my reading scores were second year of college. So from that point on, my mother said, we'll make sure that you get, uh, you, you, you do better than you're doing. At that point in time, there was a baby boom in New York City, so each school was overcrowded. Each grade was overcrowded. And I was in seven or eight, 15 or something in our school. In other words, there were 15 or 16 different different classes. And they kind of graded you about who they, what they thought you were and who, you, who your daddy were, was. So given that, you know, uh, if you were in, in 8-1 or 8-2 or 8-3, then you expected to go somewhere. But I was like in 8-17. <laughs> Now I had an art teacher named Mrs. Coulson, who said who said said to my mother about getting the book of knowledge, and she was an eight seven. So given that, I was in a smarter class. I began to understand how to do that, and uh, it was you know from that point on, it's on and upwards. But my parents decided to put me in private school from that point on. And I spent the rest of my my career, all of high school, in private high schools, either parochial, which was Episcopalian or Brooklyn Academy, which was uh, a, a private school in Brooklyn that I had to catch uh, one bus and three trains to get to. Okay. But everybody there was going to college. There was only 100 students. And of that 100 students, there were, they were about three or four of us that were black. So given that, it was it was up and at them, and you, you were trained the whole time on how to take the SAT and how to go to college. So everybody was going to college from, from Brooklyn Academy. Did you and have teachers any, were very caring? Did you have anyone in your family that went to college? No. I was the first one. My younger brother then later on went to college and got graduated, but I was the first one. Neither one of my sisters went, but I, I was the first one, and uh, it was meant to be, I guess. So being a first gen. How was that to navigate college? Well, I applied to all the city universities and all the state universities in New York. None of them accepted me. 
it was so it was so rigged against. Even though I was do had very good SAT scores, it's very rigged against poor black kids in New York. So I went to a I went to Long Island University, which was a private school, and uh, in Brooklyn. And I went there first, and then I went to Queens College, uh, which in the daytime was a public school that had all the high high smart kids. At nighttime, with all the black kids. And given that, I, that's how I went to college. And I went from there to Queensborough Community College. And then, since I was playing basketball on occasion, I got, got a basketball scholarship to go to Quinnipiac University, which is in Hamden, Connecticut. And in the meantime, after between those two times going to Hamden, Connecticut, I was in the Army. I was drafted and uh, went to become a military policeman. And my unit went to Vietnam, but I was I was already short by that time, so I didn't go. I stayed there and, and got and got out after two years, honorably just discharged. But the cool thing is, is that that whole period of time is I, I always tested very well. Brooklyn Academy taught me how to take tests, hmm. and I, I was very good at it, and I did did very well. Uh, as I was getting through that period, there was a couple of things I wanted to do. I wanted to be a college basketball coach. I wanted to be a college president, and I wanted to be mayor of the city. I was able to get two of them, but the third one, the college president, I never got, but I never really wanted to at that end. And when it came time for me to think about that, I decided I didn't want to do it anyway. But I was mayor of Carborough for a number of years, doubled the town's, the town's budget, doubled the amount of money we received, and the innovations that we did 35 to 40 years ago are still being used and still heralded as the first of its kind. We now, take the first, us. Uh, among We're going to get to. Among those things, we we started the bus system, which in Chapel Hill, Carver, which is adjoining cities, you had to have Carver, where all students were from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. You had to have Carver students to make a bus system work. So we were able to. Uh, strong on the university, basically, to get uh, the bus system done, going and for our students and, our, and my constituents. And how, how did now, you Now, that bus system is not the best college bus system in the country. How did you strong on the university? Help me understand. Well, I went to uh, the university, the provost, and asked him for money for the town so we could you know, contribute to this bus system, and he kind of blew me off. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. So that, that, that weekend, we passed out 4,000 flyers to every every one of our students who were in our constituency with the phone number of the provost, the president, and all the department chairman of the University of North Carolina. That Monday, the provost was in front of City Hall saying to me, we'll give you any bus system you want, and you just pay 10% of it, and it's yours. Any route you want. He said, but any route that had nothing to do with it, but you just want, we'll, we'll pay half of it. Now, that is... Today, the C route, which I drew initially on my kitchen table, is the main route in that bus system today, which is 40 years ago. And uh, it's now the best college bus system in the whole in the entire country. They, they had ride sharing after hours and all kinds of things. All you had to do is pay a dollar or something, and you got a ride from school to your to your pump to your apartment. And the University of North Carolina is, you know, it had 20-something thousand students. It wasn't a little place. It's a wonderful flagship university. I've got, you know, three degrees from the place. And uh, 
the system is still a very very good system but uh that's how that's how that we strong on them into doing it and uh the provost did not last much longer after that by the way he went from being the provost of the university of north carolina flagstaff school to being the provost of some school in, in texas that i never heard of before or since within six months now tell us about your experience at Quinnipiac. how was that well it was interesting because Quinnipiac had about 2300 students and uh basically they had about maybe 50 or 60 black students but that's a couple you know, unusual going for because they were right next to New Haven, they were in Hamden, Connecticut, which is, and New Haven had a fairly large black population. They had 30 scholarships they gave to black students, only for black students. So they, they would always have black students on campus. I think this is probably day. And we had as I said, about 50 or 60 of us that were black students, African-American students. And we basically revolutionized that that campus. Most of the most of the black black male students were actually athletes. I, I was there on a basketball scholarship. Actually, were, were male students, and given that, uh, it was interesting. We as as we did in Queens College, we had our own table in the cafeteria, and we did a number of things. We kind of took over the radio. We had a college radio station. We took that over for half for half of the time that was there, and we had at one point in time a sit-in where they took over the radio station because the administration was not doing the equitable thing with all of the students. And with the sit-in, they also went in and took over the president's office. And I remember coming out of, out of, out of breakfast one day, I see people climbing through the window of the president's office. And basically, they, they, we had a big sit-in thing and out of that, we got a number of different things. Among the things we got, well, money was set aside out of our student fees, basically, for a number of years. So we could bring, you know, people who were politicians or whoever into, 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 into speak to the students for a weekend of our own, and we did that. We, we also got, got them to to an innovative way of grading, which I did, I did my entire career. I used it from that point on. Which says that you had going into your final, whatever you did, that if you can do better, you got a better grade. That's among the things. So you, you didn't have a surprise freeze up on your your grades for you had a bad freeze up on your final. That didn't bother you. You got whatever your grade was. The the other thing is is that. They were very much into helping and being student-centered after that. It wasn't that, you know, the, student, the teachers were better than the teachers were part of the university, as were the students. And Quinnipiac University, which now now went into, you know, Division One basketball and hockey, which we never, never had, two different campuses, a medical school. It's a major, major university from what it, what it was when I was there. We had, like I said, 2,300 students. Now they're in uh, probably 10,000 students. But, you know, this this was just a major university to be a member of, an uh, alumni of. And I I was also on the board of, one of, actually the first student on the board of trustees. 
a friend of mine, uh, Bill Yu, who later on became the mayor of Alexandria, Virginia, was student body president. And he said to me, you know, there's a student body uh, a position open for the board of trustees that we're going to vote for. Why don't you put your name in a hat? Well, I was the only one to put my name in a hat and got elected. So I was the first student on the board of trustees at Quinnipiac University. At that time, it was Quinnipiac College, which got me into, into politics later on. got me thinking about that. That was my first, I guess, entrance into, into politics. And I got elected, and it also says that you, if you, also who you know, not necessarily what you know. And we did a good job. Of course, my senior year, I going to a board meeting, and the chairman of the board of trustees, trustees passed me a, a slip and said, Bob, why are the black students taking over the radio station. So then we had to basically break up the board meeting and a number of us met with the other students and the students had done it from the time I went. I saw them all at lunch. And I left and went home and came back and they had done it in the four hours in between. They used to go to the radio station. And because of that sit-in, basically, they got they went to, you got the black student weekend and a couple other things were going on. So it shows me, both of these things showed me well and later on in life as I went, went, got together with the Carver Community Coalition, which remade the town of Carver to this day. And the things that we innovated then are they're still being used, as I said, 40 years later. It got me thinking in an unorthodox way about how you can get student power and youth voting power and also citizen power to get things done. Remember, a government is only as good as the, the people that make it. Whatever the people want, if they do it correctly, they'll get it. If we look at today's, um, which is during the Trump era now when this is being done, at the Trump era, era here, we probably will get rid of him this year because he is so much out of step with everybody else. His vulgarisms, the petty stuff he does, the settling of scores is something that we really can't get having a world leader. And following Barack Obama, who had no scandals, nobody go to jail, was a wonderful president. He's the most popular politician in the country, country now. It was just like night and day. Like switch one on and switch one off. And we're six months from the election when we're doing this podcast. And my suspicion is, as a person who's been around elections for a long time, is he'll be, he'll be defeated. And I think it'll be a landslide. And the Democrats will take over the House and Senate. And we'll go through a sea change with the younger people coming in and getting rid of all the corruption and all the buddy, buddy, buddy stuff and all the taking of the, the wealth of this country when three people have as much wealth today as half of the country. That's unconscionable. That's worse than, than Marie Antoinette and the French Revolution. Remember, she got a head chopped off of that. So this, this, this is something I will predict. We will change with people in your generation, Rudy, and the people behind you. That this uh, millennial generation, I think, will, will cause lots of things to change for the better. Well, let's let's continue on that path of conversation. So you graduate from Cornerpiac College. So yep. now you've gone from Bricktown to St. Albans. Uh, you've gone to the Army. You've gone to Queensboro Community College. You've gone to Queens College. You've gone to now Cornerpiac. You graduate from Cornerpiac. What do you do? Well, 
since I knew the, the, the press, since I was on the board of trustees, I knew the president. And he made sure that the vice president would take me to any school I wanted to go to. They would drive me to school. So I visited Cornell and visited a number of other places. And I applied for a number of schools. And I, I was on the dean's list every semester I was at Cornell PA. And given that, I got accepted as, as a Ford Fellow, which was for black students at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Now, my mother and my father were, were in North Carolina at the time. And uh, basically, they, uh, they were here, and I, I kind of joined them and went to Chapel Hill. Are you still there, Rudy? Yeah, I'm still there. You went to okay. Chapel Hill, and, and then how was that? Well, uh, I got along I, with your mother. We, we moved there and got into an apartment and had a good time. And uh, basically, I had similar kinds of problems with a university and, and also a department that was changing from one that only had a very few black students to having a little bit more black students. And the professors were harder to change. And uh, the upper echelons of the University of North Carolina was very much anti-movement of certain kinds of degrees for black students. This was the South still. And given that, it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a struggle for me getting my degree, but I got it. A master's in regional planning. And then I went to School of Public Health and got a degree in a master's science in public health which was very different. Let's pause right there for a second. It sounds like you had some racial challenges at UNC Chapel Hill. For students who are there now or going through a similar experience, how did you overcome a professor who sounds like had some racial bias? Well, we, uh, I just basically uh, found the ways around them. The same as you did. You, you find ways around these guys that are out there just to be racist. And it's, it's, it's so counterproductive to get into that. Why would, you, why would you try to just deny a student a chance to go ahead? Your job is there to train them, give them the information they need so they can go on and be something different and see something better, probably better than their parents. That's why I found it fascinating when I look at what my, my experience at, at Auburn and my experience as a student and, and going, through, going through college where there were people, there were student teachers that would block you from, if they could, from, from getting around. You ran into that at Chapel Hill. I remember speaking to the professor and the deans there about you. So it's still going on. But the key thing is we always have to fight it. And when you put the light of day on it, sunshine on it, it kind of goes away. Nobody wants to be depicted here as a racist. It's time. So given that, they'll they'll moderate what they do. It'll give you a hard time. But you have to be persistent and say, I'm, I deserve to be here. My family has, has paid through sweat and blood and generations of blood to be here. And I'm going to get by here and get, get ahead. So let's continue on. You're at UNC. You overcome some racial struggles. What was the program of study you were studying there? My first program of study was uh, city regional planning. And primarily, I was just there talking about specializing in 
and housing and stuff like that. We had one black professor they brought in to teach teaches on on Wednesday night and Thursday morning, if you could believe that, from Rutgers. And he was a pretty nice guy. He knew what he was doing, but he was the only black professor we had. And he kind of told us very often about how the ropes of how to how to get around the system and how to get by. But he was a PhD from Rutgers. Because they didn't have any PhDs that were black. And, and the people who were, who were in our, I was in a master's program, but the people that were black in the doctoral program at that time in the University of Chapel Hill barely got out, if they got out at all. Most of them never got out. They strung you along and strung you along and never let you get out. And I, I, when I got my second master's in public health, there was a guy there named Frankie, wonderful guy, but he never got out. He was in the doctoral program. They just strung him along for until he decided to just quit after you know, five or six years of doing this, you go home. And that's what they, that's what they do. They don't really flunk you out. This never, your stuff is never good enough. I had one professor at UNC Greensboro who made me, re, had, made me repeat a uh, paper, you know, 20 something times, believe it or not, 20 something times I had to give it to him. Cause it was incomplete and I kept on going six, eight months later. So finally, one of the deans said to me at UNCG, let me change this program. I mean, let me redo this one more time and put it in. So he put it in and the guy rejected it again. He then took it to the provost. And then when I, then I got a call later on, oh, you, that paper was, was well good enough then at that point. Because that, that, that teacher's <laughs> the name was Bebo. That teacher's racism was finally exposed to everybody. Nobody wants to be a racist, but that's what he had done. And, and, and the study and, and the paper was on race, poverty, and females. What happens? Uh, what happens if a female gets divorced? If she's black, she goes from having something if she had she had a, a husband who's a breadwinner, and to having absolutely nothing. <coughs> That's a very personal account to me, by the way, as you would could attest to. And bottom, and so given that, those are the kinds of things that. He just didn't, you know, he just was hassling me. He wanted me to do it, so he would read it and, and laugh about the program. And, and But, you know, after the 22nd time of doing it, and the changes were just something subtle here and there, but it wasn't good enough. Everybody else was good enough, because that class had been over with for six months before it was finally approved. But, you know, you learn. That's that's one of the things you got to do. Just per, you persevere and say, I'm good enough. No matter what you do, I'm good enough. And you tend to get by with that. And you know, you're coming for you and I uh, come from a whole different perspective than, than most of the majority population does. And for us to us to get ahead, we have to be the best of the best. And if you aren't the best of the best, you won't be able to make it. And I look at, at the people that I've known for 75 years, and very few of us left. But I was always among the best of the best. Even now as a, as a park as a business person, who you know working with a RV park and stuff like that? We we remember there are fifteen thousand RV parks in this country. Only three of them are black owned. That's today. That's not tomorrow. That's today. And there's reasons for that. Among them is if we are successful at it, people try to buy it from us immediately, even though they wouldn't have built it themselves. I had a guy call me two weeks ago on a Sunday and said that. He has decided that he wanted to buy my RV park. And I said, uh, nope. 
I know where you got that from. Because first, personally, I don't own it. But my whole family owns it. But uh, I didn't even entertain what, what he was going to charge or whatever. He said he had decided he was going to want to change profession and he wanted to buy my RV park. And people gave him my name. Now, how did he get my name except from other, other white park owners? Because that's all they are. And uh, that's today. That's not, you know, 15 years ago. That was two weeks ago. Well, you helped our listeners uh, move ahead in the story as you went from UNC Chapel Hill to UNCG to get your doctorate in education. Why did you decide to get a doctorate in education? Well, I guess the, the honest answer was it was one of the easier ones to get. It's more in my field anyway. That's what I was doing. I, I've been teaching at at at, at, at Queensboro at, at various community colleges, Richmond, Richmond Tech. I was where I was on the faculty at at that time, and I managed to get a situation where I I I'd gotten the community college system to basically pay for a number of community college professors and faculty members to get a, go through a summer program at UNC Greensboro. So given that, it was in School of Education, and we got through it, I was one of the coordinators of it. And out, the, out of that program, three or four of us minorities got doctorates eventually from UNC Greensboro, one of the other colleges. But it was, it was for basically folks who were, you know, master's level probably in almost all the cases, and it was it was a good education we got in graduate in graduate school at UNC Greensboro, and I went there and ran into a black professor by the way, I still know to this day, Dr. Ed Bell, and he was a real mentor to me. I remember when I finally applied to the doctoral program there, one guy did not want me to get in, and he managed to be, for a temporary period, the dean of the School of Education. But what happened in that instance is. Ed said, don't put it in today. I'll put it in on Monday. This guy, this guy's last day is Friday. And he put it in, and another person who we knew very well got me, accepted me immediately. And throughout my life, I've always had one or two people <coughs> who believed in me and believed in what I wanted to do. And given that, I was able to, to you know, achieve and, and accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. That's how I got in the doctorate program at UC Greensboro. And uh, managed to run into a number of wonderful professors and got through there and got out. But I had one guy on the committee there also who was uh, department chairman of one of the other departments other than the one I was in. And he was determined also for me not to get out with my doctorate. So what the other people on my committee did put somebody else on the committee, took him off, he didn't know about it, and basically, when it came down to it, they all voted for me to, me to get my doctorate. Well, as part of that, he, he didn't know I graduated until he saw me walking across the stage. And he said, how, did, how come I didn't know about this? Well, that's, that's what happens when, you, when you're a racist. And he knows who he is. He's in School of Public Health to this day, I think, probably. God was from Minnesota. So I always says he knows who he is. So him, him and Dan Bebo. When you, were, <laughs> when you were in Greensboro, you did a program with 4-H called Camping for Tomorrow. Tell us about that program. Well, 
it's really interesting. I, I, I'd always done stuff with youth things. And it was a job opening up there when I was still in graduate school. And basically, they had a part-time position for, you know, a camping assistant, a 4-H assistant. So I did that. And I, I basically went to the projects and got a lot of kids in 4-H. Had, had basically a couple hundred kids in 4-H. All the rest of the people in 4-H and in that county and all the other counties only had a very few kids. I had hundreds of kids. And the position became open and I got the job permanently. And a, a, a 4-H agent is on the faculty of a major land-grant university. So I was on, I was actually a 4-H agent at, that, was, that was actually being paid by University of North Carolina at Chapel, at University of North Carolina at Greensboro, not North Carolina A&T and NC State. I'm getting confused in my old age. And basically, I was on the faculty of both of those places. And uh, we had two different contracts that you gave to different people. One from one from uh, NC State and one from uh, A&T. And the bottom line of this was you're a faculty member and you, you can go there and get stuff done or whatever. And some of, some, of the, some of the other people or NC State faculty members were members of the faculty club. Uh, but the bottom line of that was I was able to do that and be very good at it. And then when other people were looking for specialists, which are the people who run state programs in 4-H or anything else in, in, in extension, cooperative extension, and the people at Auburn came by and he said, you ought to get Bob if you can. So I applied for Auburn at Auburn University. University of, of, of Florida had also been after me at that time. And I went to Auburn. And what I didn't realize was you, you were then in the deep south. North Carolina is, is south, but it ain't the deep south. But it was a very quaint place. It was a very quaint place. The Auburn that, that is there now is very, very different than Auburn was when I first went there. And everybody was just very few. Now, there's very few of us who were black teachers. Out of 2,500 faculty members, there was 20 of us that were black. But we, we, we were actually why was it, very well treated, actually. Why was it important for you to get black kids from the projects involved with camping and nature? Because that was my job. That was basically my whole ethos is trying to help people in the next generation, whether it was you or other people. But people like me weren't, weren't being helped by anybody else. It was my job to help them. And we did that. In 4-H, we had one girl from the projects who became the public speaking person for the whole state. And she was from a very poor background, but she was a good kid and was very good at what she did. And that's what I what I did for throughout the whole time I was in extension, whether it was at Auburn or or at at, at uh, basically North Carolina. And in both cases, my job was to help help all kids, but also help the minority kid. One of the things that we did by camping for tomorrow is it was, it was a program called Citizenship Washington Focus, and I I would I would. I became in charge of that by default. Somebody else retired. It was given to me. But I would take kids from the state of Alabama for a week-long thing at the Ford Center in, in Washington, D.C. And we'd go to Congress. We'd do things differently. And we'd go places. So while I was there, I got kids from all backgrounds. 
to come. And I always would have make sure I had at least three or four, not more than that, black students. And got to be five or six or seven out of, let's say, 20 students. And these students would spend a week uh, visiting Congress, visiting their congressmen, going to various places. I would do some, some things differently. I would make sure they go to Baltimore. And we'd be in the Inner Harbor spending, spending a day eating, eating seafood and visiting the shops along the Inner Harbor, going on boat rides where the kids would be singing the Star Spangled Banner as we went by uh, where, where Francis Scott Scott Key was at Fort McHenry. So we would do all of those kinds of things. And I did that for, for 10 years. And uh, I enjoyed it. And it was, it was good. And those kids all became something. When one little little person, I think I may have said this earlier, who lived in, lived in, the, that lived in, a, in the hay bale house. And he's now a lawyer. Now, that's, that's, how, that's how you can affect people's lives as people affected my life. Wow. Did you run into any senators in your time with those trips to uh, D.C.? Of course. I, I visited with Republicans. So Jeff Sessions, I, I met with every time. Shelby, I met with every time. And they were gracious. Plus, the kids had different congressmen members, too. So they met with their, they would always meet with their, their home congressmen also, because we were divided, divided the kids up into groups. And they would always be, there was just four or five adults with us as we went. And we would always make sure they met their own congressmen, and all of them met the, the senators. And, and Jeff and uh, uh, Shelby would, would rotate which, which of them would see us. We'd only see one of them, but they'd rotate each year who, would, who we would see. In fact, the interesting thing is later on, years years later, is Jeff's son was one of my students. Jeff Shelby, Jeff, Jeff Sessions' student, son was one of was one of my students. He's a good student, and uh, we got along very well. And you know, my classes were the ones I could. I taught uh, a a number of different classes, but basically, citizenship, citizenship involvement, in public political science is one of the things we taught. And so my, my classes were over, over, always oversubscribed. People would fight to get in my classes, and I never would turn anybody down. So my classes had 40 or 50 students in all the time. An interesting thing that happened during, during my last year teaching was, was, was during the year that uh, we had the SARS epidemic in China. And I was with a special group of up-and-coming extension specialists from all over the country that actually had went to China. And we had went to China during the SARS epidemic. And we came back and parents was calling in the university not to let me teach for a couple of weeks because I, I might have SARS. Yeah, which was funny, but it, it was, I understood I didn't, I didn't teach those couple of weeks, but one of my former students actually taught that during that, that period of time, which was fine. But the interesting thing is the SARS epidemic, which was different than this new, new, new virus, which may not be different, but it's, it's, it was similar. But the SARS epidemic was only transmitted by sexual contact. And I didn't have any sexual contact when I was in China. I wasn't worried about that. Uh, I wanted to, you know, people approached me, but I, I just said, no, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> I guess I should be saying this on television or, 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 or what's the day, but it's, that's what happened. 
And the bottom line was, I, to this day, I think there might be something, some, some, something with that to do with that this uh, current C nineteen epidemic. I think that means that's probably also sexually transmitted, part, partially at least. Even though it's not being said that, it's that's what I think it's one of the things because they're very much related in what they do, and they're they're also related in what those these so-called wet markets. basically it was uh, they had wild animals that they bring from the bushes and those the people who were peasants basically from the countryside rural people would eat what they ate when they grew up eating as we all do and that's why you know it, and but a lot of those animals are, are slaughtered together and the germs come together I think that's where that's where we got SARS and that's where we got this COVID, co-virus we have now what what is your advice for global leaders to address this pandemic talk to each other you know share everything have no secrets one of the reasons that happened that spread so bad in China and and in America those leaders wouldn't talk to each other and they try to keep it secret and try to suppress it instead of being honest with the population Tell everybody what's going on and what's happening. In fact, you got a hundred thousand people now who have died in this thing. It's unconscionable. Our country won't be won't be back the way it was until your daughter is grown. She will see what what we saw six months ago. Then this is this is what so this is going to put us in a deep depression and. <clears throat> It's, it's in a political sense. Whenever we have Republicans in, all they do is steal. That's that's their mantra. They just try to steal as much as we can. From the, they say they want small government, but what they really want is to steal from government. That's all Trump has done. That's all his people have done. And in his case, he's trying to trying to pad the thing for, for all of his friends. But remember, three people own as much of this country. As as the top half, of the, as the half of the rest of the country, that's unconscionable. That's Mary Antoinette area. Yes, yes, it is. So talking to each other, uh, it definitely seems like that's what we need to do. It sounds like we need to get out to vote locally as people yes. are looking to open up their businesses. I know you run a business. What is the delicate balance between safety and financial security? Wash your hands a lot, which is what I do. Uh, and basically, you know, in this case, start, you know, wear a mask for this thing until it goes away. But it may not go away for a long time. But the damage it has done to the population is 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 tremendous. Are you still here, yeah, Rudy? I'm here. Okay, because on my on my on my uh, iPhone, I for some reason it cuts off from me on occasion, so I'm not sure when it's on or not. Right now it's on. So, but the bottom line of this is, we were we are we are experiencing a dislocation 
that we have not seen ever in this country. But also it's exposing a lot of things, inequities and stuff that have happened. And I guess the key thing is people are now seeing for the first time how bad a number of people live. Yourself, myself, our family has lived well for, for who we are and where we came from. We have done well for ourselves as a family. And that's a good thing. As my mother made sure that, as she said to me, if they put it in your head, they can't take it out. So get an education. That's one of the things I've said, I've said to all of my, my children and our blended family and also in just my, my initial family. And they all have done very well and all, all but one had went to college and gotten out. So given that, you know, that's, that's among the things that we need to be doing is to try to help everybody up. But, but our economy was built on, and this is, this, this is why it was, it was, I think it was built on sand. It didn't have a strong foundation. Because when you look at who's out of work, these are all service people. That's working for somebody else, to, <coughs> serving people food primarily. You know, almost over two people out of work were either servicing food or being, you know, working working people in the lower 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 th- kinds of things, and not not making a whole lot of money doing it. But that's what kept the whole society running, and you had an upper class of 15 percent probably that was just benefit from it. That's Mary Marie and Antoinette country. And if it's not, not dealt with and, and, and if we stop buying politicians, the politicians stop letting themselves get bought. We're in for that same kind of thing. Free people. Half 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 of the wealth? That's unconscionable. I don't want people to take it off from everybody. And then you, you rig it such a way that, that nobody else can get ahead. My getting ahead was just by flukes and luck. Same thing with you. You know, it, that, that's that's didn't matter how smart you were, but it was fluke and luck. And yet, you, you had to meet the right person who was willing to help you do the right thing. And all those people who helped me were not black folks; they were white folks too. There were people of all races that helped me. And I can't say that, but they believed in me, and people believed in you. I, I, when I went to your doctor promotion, it's very obvious those people believed in you. And there weren't just black people on that, on that, on that panel. It's like they weren't on mine. But, you know, that's what you need to do to be able to get out and to be able to do things. And our society has, has to stop doing this racial stuff. I noticed that, that NBC for a while had a number of people of color that were on their show. That after a while, half of them got, they got rid of. And one lady who was from Winston-Salem, a black lady, a light-skinned black lady, she spoke out about being about doing grunt work. Basically, she was being a professor, and they fired her. She was, she was then considered to be an uppity black person. So that has not changed. So let's let let us not let's, let's not forget ourselves. As we're closing out the show today, many of us are in isolation. Uh, what are your advice yeah. for? individuals around the country listening on the show today. Wear a mask. Whatever you do, don't listen to crazy Trump. Wear a mask. I, I limit at 75, knowing I'm, I'm in a high-risk group. I limit my stuff to, to generally I go one day a week and I go to the fresh market, make sure I wear a mask, 
have, have, have gloves on, and I, I, I don't touch anything strange, and I make sure I, I, I wear my hand sanitizer before and afterwards to come home. Because if this stuff hits hits me, I'm probably gone, and I know that. But that's that's probably goes for almost anybody now and now until nowadays. So that's my advice to everybody: stay home. You know, stay stay away from other people. Stay around your family, and that's it. Don't bring them any. Don't bring in anything that'll make them them dangerous. This stuff spreads so fast, and it's so easily can, can contract it, and your your relatives will be gone. And, and, and that's that's fact. Well, thank you for. And anybody, anybody, anybody who says this is a hoax is crazy. Thank you for your words of advice. We're going to take your advice. We're going to stay home. Uh, listen, my name is Derek Drakeford. This has been from Bricktown. Tune in next week at the same time, and you'll get more original stories from Mayor Drakeford. Uh, final sentence, final message for the people as we close out. Peace out. Peace out. We'll see you next week. <laughs>